Job 38. The title of the message this morning, you don't have an outline this morning, again I apologize for that. The title of the message is Knowledge is Understanding. Knowledge is Understanding. Way back in Job 31, it's been a while since we preached in Job 31. As a matter of fact, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Job at all. But way back in Job 31 verse 35, Job said this, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me and that mine adversary had written a book. Job had contended for his innocence throughout this book. Job's greatest plea was that God would himself answer his complaints, both to prove Job's innocence and also to justify Job in his suffering. Job knew he was innocent. Job knew he was justified. And he just wished that God would answer so that God could prove to everybody that he was in fact innocent. But you know, the old adage goes... Be careful what you wish for. And we're going to see that this morning, that Job should have been a little more circumspect in what he wished for. Look with me in Job 38, in the first three verses. Remember, Elihu has been speaking here, and now he finishes, and it says in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. The Bible says that God answered Job out of the whirlwind. This word in the the Hebrew, whirlwind, describes a violent storm with heavy winds. This word has been used a couple of other times in the Scripture. Do you remember when Elijah was taken away in the chariot of fire? Fairly familiar story. The Scriptures tell us that there was a whirlwind that took Elijah away in that chariot of fire. The same word used. It's the same word used to describe the storm that arose on the sea when Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord and went to Tarshish. When he was attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord, the Scriptures tell us that there arose a tempestuous storm. The exact same word that we see here in the Scriptures. Why do I tell you this? Why do I put put these pieces together? Well, as we think about those events, Elijah being carried away in the chariot of fire, the tremendous storm that nearly sunk the ship that Jonah was on, this event, as God appeared to Job and began speaking to him, was not for the faint of heart. This would have been terrifying. This would have been memorable. This would have been serious, without doubt, a fearful thing. God asks Job in verse 2, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Now God is not speaking directly of Elihu's speech here, for we know from the Scriptures that Elihu was not one that was corrected by God. He was speaking more generally of the philosophy accepted between both Job and his companions. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were last in Job, the fact that Job and his companions both had a problem, and that problem was self-justification and self-righteousness. They had taken it in different ways. They had observed it to different degrees, but both of them were in this place of a mindset, a philosophy of self-righteousness. And so God says, Who is this that darkeneth knowledge, that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Excuse me. He's saying there's something very wrong with the way that these men are thinking. Then God prepares Job for his answer. God tells Job to loins. We see this all throughout the Scripture, this phrase, gird up thy loins, or a man girded up his loins. What it was talking about was the robes that men would wear, the garments that men would wear, when a man needed to do something very active, or if he needed to do something quickly, or if he needed to do something uh, at a faster pace, he would take the bottom of his robe and he would tuck it in to his waist. He would, he would bring it together so that he would be able to move freely without it tripping him up, without it getting in his way, so he wouldn't be stepping on things, so he wouldn't be tripping over things. He was girding up his loins. And that's what this concept means. Basically, if we were to take that phrase and translate it into modern vernacular, God would be saying something like this. Brace yourself. Brace yourself, because things are about to get pretty intense. 
brace yourself because I'm just about to require of you exactly what you've asked me to require of you. I'm going to require of you your righteousness before me. Prepare yourself for that. And then God goes through a series of questions throughout the next many chapters. We're going to look at those questions this morning. I'm going to break my outline points into these questions. As I do so, I trust that it it will be... It's already a little bit different than a typical outline. Uh, You don't have an outline before you this morning, so I trust that uh, I will be able to make it clear enough for you that you can keep a semblance of an outline if you would like to do so. And the first category of questions that God asks Job is, where were you? Job, where were you? In verses 4 through 11, where were you? Where wast thou, as he says in verse 4? He asks, where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Verse 4, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the seas with doors when it brake forth as if it had issued out of the womb when I made the clouds the garment thereof and the, thickness, and the thick darkness a swaddling band? For it and break up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said hitherto shalt thou come but no further and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. God says he made the foundation and as with any builder who cares about his, his structure as he's describing it and as he's making it he begins with the foundation. He describes laying the measures of it determining its size determining its length He asks, what are the pillars formed upon? Who laid the cornerstone of the earth? How do you know? How how does earth hang? How are the foundations laid? Do you know, Job? Have you seen it? Have you seen how the earth is formed? Have you seen how the foundations are laid? Have you seen how it rests here? No man can describe that day that all things were created. No man was there. No man can know by first-hand account what happened on that day. But God says, I can. I was there. God even describes some of the happenings around it. In verse 7, He speaks of the morning stars that sang together as the earth was created. That being a picture of the angels as they sang at the creation and the formation of the earth. God describes containing the seas, that He shut the seas in by raising the land around the seas so that the seas would have definitive borders, so that it would not encroach, so that they would be contained with the tides and the waves, but they would not be able to go any further than God allowed them to go. And so God asks the question, where were you, Job? Where were you when all of these things happened? Let me ask you the same question. Where were you? Where were you when God created all things that are? Where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth? God knew what was going on on that day. God testified that He remembers the angels singing together for joy on that day. He was there. You weren't. I was not. Second question He asks in verses 12-24, Have you? Has there been a day, God asks, where the sun has risen at your command? Look with me in verse 12. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know what is his place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it? It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. He asks, Has there been a day where you have commanded the sun to rise? Troy, has there been a day where you've just been working hard and you've needed an extra hour of sunlight, so you've looked at that sun and said, Son, just give me an extra hour here. And the day has given you the extra hour that you need to get the work done. Hasn't happened. Matt, have you ever woken up way early in the morning as you are wont to do for your job and said, you know what, it's really hard to wake up in darkness. So tell you what, son, you're just going to start coming up at 2.30 in the morning. You're just going to start popping up a little early so I can wake up a little earlier and the sun's done it. Hasn't happened. It doesn't happen. 
See, we don't command the sun to rise in the morning. We don't command the sun to set at night. We might be able to predict it, but we don't command it. God says, I do. God says, have you? Has the sun ever risen at your command? It hasn't. God says, it's risen at my command. He describes the sun as a signet ring, which stamps its impression upon the earth with life, with warmth. God continues, he asks, who has walked along the very foundations of the ocean and searched their depths? Who's done that? Have you? God asks, who has the authority over death? Do you? Who has perceived every inch of the earth from start to finish? Have you? Verse 16, hast thou entered into the springs of the sea? Or hast thou walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been opened unto thee, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare, if thou knowest it all. Job, you must know all this stuff, right? Here you are questioning me. Here you are questioning my goodness. Here you are questioning the circumstances I've brought into your life. You must be pretty smart, Job. Huh. You must have walked the entire breadth of the sea. You must know what's at the very bottom of the ocean. You know, we still don't know what's at the very bottom of our ocean. We can't get there. All of our modern technology, we can't get to the bottom, to the lowest point. We still don't know what's down there. Do you have authority over death? You know, we're thousands of years later than when God was speaking to Job. We have seen outer space. We have seen the earth from outer space. There's so much that we know in the past thousands of years of human development. But for all of this, we can't control the weather. We can hardly even predict the weather. We can't cheat death, nor can any man give a valid testimony of what death is like. I know there have been lots of books written lately about I've died and come back to life. I stand by my statement. A man cannot give a valid testimony of what it's like to die. For all that we know, the more we know, the less we know, right? For every question we answer, there's a hundred new questions to ask. We're not getting smarter, we're just finally realizing how much we don't know. We have in this age been successful at defining the order of the universe and the law of physics, gravity, conservation of energy, the laws of thermodynamics. We observe how all of these things work and it explains so much about what's happening around us, why things are the way they are, but just because we've observed it doesn't mean we know where it came from or how it works. How does the earth sustain itself? How are atoms held together? Why are things the way they are? We don't know. All we can do is observe. God says, do you know? You don't know. Do I know? I don't know. But God knows. God knows. God was there. God made it. And Colossians tells us, God sustains it. And as God began explaining this to Job, we might imagine Job began to see just how foolish his cries for satisfaction really are. Here Job is thinking that God, that God owes him an explanation. And as God answers Job, Job begins to realize God owes no man anything. God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe me anything. Have you? Where were you? The first question. Have you? The second set of questions. Third set of questions in verses 25 through 32. Can you? Can you? Look with me in verse 25. Who hath divided the water course for the overflowing of waters or a way for the lightning of thunder to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness where there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste ground and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth? Hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The waters are hid with a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? 
God describes lightning in verse 25, 26. He describes rain and the inevitable growth that springs up from them. And he asks Job, Job, is rain a byproduct of a coordinated human effort to take care of our earth? I mean, did all of the earth's governments get together and say, hey, look, we can't be everywhere at one time. We don't have enough watering pails to hit every tree. So let's just command rain to come down. This will solve all of our problems for us. It didn't work that way, did it? God says, I take care of my creation. I water the earth. Is lightning simply a byproduct of human ingenuity? Is it when a man gets really excited, lightning flashes above his head, or he sneezes and there's a lightning flash? We're looking out, oh, lots of people with allergies today. Look at all the sneezes around, all these lightning. It's not like that, is it? Lightning isn't a byproduct of some sort of human intervention. Lightning isn't a byproduct of something. It has nothing to do with us. Rain has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. His wonder, His majesty, His creation, which He cares for and He tends. No one cares for the earth as God does. God literally describes the care of the earth in much the same way here that we might describe the tending of a garden. He talks about watering the earth. He talks about growing things, maturing things, tending things, caring for things. God says, I care for my world. In verse 31, he begins to ask about the stars. Maybe you noticed that as he was talking about the Pleiades and Orion. He asks Job, Job, verse 31, canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Mazaroth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? The Pleiades are often called the seven sisters. You actually see nine stars labeled here, the seven largest being those that are the seven sisters. It's an open star cluster located in the constellation of Taurus. God asks Job, was it you who bound all of those stars together? Did you take all of those stars and put them just so? Did you put them in their place? You say, well, isn't it just random, random happenstance? No, it's not. God says He formed nations, and it shouldn't surprise us then that we see the exact same constellations in every civilization on earth. You go to China, ancient China had the same constellations. You go to Egypt, Egypt recognized the same constellations. Western world, we recognize the same constellations. God formed them. And He says, Job, did you do that? Did you make those? Did you make the Pleiades? talks about Orion. Orion is one of the most well-known constellations and most visibly obvious constellations in the night sky, particularly because of these three stars right here, regularly known as Orion's belt. God asks Job, can you loose the stars of Orion from their formation? Have you ever looked up at the stars and been like, you know, that doesn't look enough like... Uh, some hunter, so let's just add a few extra stars here and let's make that belt, let's give it a buckle in the middle. Every belt needs a buckle. You haven't done that. can't do that. God is the one that's in charge of these. God has put them where they are. You should look for Orion's belt sometime. It's real easy to find in the sky. Then he talks about Maseroth. We're not quite sure what Maseroth is in the scriptures, but Scholars, because of the fact that it talks about the seasons, believe that Maseroth is speaking of the zodiac signs. Now, we are not here speaking of astrology in a mystical sense. The zodiac has become associated with um, astrology, with um, mystical things. We don't get into that as Christians. It's not appropriate. It's not right. It's not good. But the zodiac is far more beneficial than simply your birth uh, sign. They're situated in 30 degree increments around the night sky. And for thousands of years, these various constellations have been used in these 30 degree divisions, 12 of them, as an incredibly accurate coordinate system for traveling, for sailing. God gave them to us. 
God gave us this order so that we might use them to our benefit. God says, can you bring forth Mazaroth in his season? Can you bring forth each one of these in their 30 degree increments in their season? Can you make this work? You can't, Job. You don't. I do, God says. It's me. Finally, he speaks of Arcturus. Arcturus, the fourth brightest star in the sky. This kind of gives you a way in which you can actually find Arcturus. Do you look for the Big Dipper? Follow Big Dipper down a little bit. You look for the really bright one. That's Arcturus. It's in the constellation Bootes, which is made up of ten stars. That most likely accounts for Arcturus and his sons in the scripture. Most likely these other nine stars in the Bootes constellation would be Arcturus's sons. That's S-O-N-S, not S-U-N-S, by the way, if you look in your scripture. He says, can you guide them? No, you can't. But I can, Job. Just as we saw with God's statements concerning the rain, God is describing the night sky not just as creator, but as caregiver. God cares for these stars. God arranges the night sky in the way that He deems best. God, now we know God loves us, right? God loves you. I hope you know that. God cares for us. We know that as well. But let's not think of the rest of God's creation as just being forgotten. God has put great care into all of His creation. He tends it. He keeps it. He loves it. And He asks Job, could you do this? Better yet, would Job even do it if he could? I tell you, I'm a homeowner. There are a lot of things to be done around my house. Now, I love my house. God has given us this house. I thank God for this house. There are a lot of things I can do in my house. But you know, sometimes I look at all of those things that I can do and I say, I'm just not interested. My wife did, made a garden this year. You know what? I was pretty enthusiastic about being a part of that garden in the winter. But spring came, chartering came, ordination came, things got busy, and you know what? I could put a garden in, but I didn't. My wife did. She's tending it. She's doing a great job. It's looking good. I sure didn't. The intricacy and design that God has put into this world, from the smallest molecule to the stars of the heavens, God says, can you do that, Job? Well, certainly you can't. You know what? Even if we could, would we? Would we take the time and the effort and the thought and the design and the beauty and the creativity to do it all? Maybe some of us would. I probably wouldn't have. I would have made it very functional. That would have been me. You know, there are a great number of things that we take for granted upon this earth. As God continues, He speaks of the ordinances of heaven, what we might laws of nature. Can we set their dominion over the earth? Do we have control over these things, these laws of nature? No, we don't. We observe them, we live by them, but we have no control over them. God does. We don't control how fast electricity moves. We don't control how it grounds itself. We don't control the wind. We don't control these, the, the tides, the seas. God does. He asks in verse 36, look at that with me. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who hath given understanding to the hearts? He speaks of instincts here. Have you ever taken time to consider animals' instincts? Who can number the clouds and winds in verse 37? Or who can stay the bottles of heaven when the dust groweth into hardness and the clods cleave fast together? Wilt thou hunt the prey for the lions or fill the appetite of the young lions? when they couch in their dens and abide in the covert, uh, in, in the covert to lie in wait? Who provideth for the raven his food when his young ones cry unto God? They wander for lack of meat. He asks in verse 39, did you give the lions the instincts necessary to catch prey? He asks in verse 40, did you give the ravens the ability and the understanding to catch food? We speak of instinct here. I show you here a picture of a koala. Here's a presumably a mama koala. 
There's the little baby peeking its head over the mama there. Pretty cute. That baby's pretty cute there. Let me show you what a koala looks like when it's just born. That's a koala when it's just born. It's a hairless, hideous little beast. And not only is it a hairless, hideous little beast, you notice something about its eyes? They're not open. They're not even fully formed yet. This thing cannot see. But you know what's even more interesting? Its ears are not fully formed. It cannot yet hear. Koalas are born with an inability to see or hear. They have not developed their eyes or their ears fully yet. But do you know what happens the moment a koala is born? The first thing every koala does when it's born is crawl into its mother's pouch. How does it know to do that? How does it know to do that? It can't see. How does it know where its mama's pouch is? If mama koala is not telling it, quick, go up to the right a little bit more. You got it. It's not happening. It wouldn't happen even if it could hear. How does it know that? God made it that way. We're going to look at more animals here in just a moment. I won't have pictures of them all. But we're going to look at more animals. God continues in chapter 39, 1 through 12, asking about the instincts of other wild animals. The instincts of wild animals is a testimony of God. These animals don't know, haven't learned how to do the things they do. They just, they just know how to do them. They have instincts. Nobody can explain it. No scientist can explain it. We can explain it. God tells them what to do. He speaks of mountain goats in verses 1 through 4 which give birth on the rocks of the hills. He speaks of the wild ass, which wanders in barren lands, and yet somehow, even though this thing is wandering in barren lands where there's very little water and very little food, somehow it survives. God takes care of it. He speaks of the unicorn in the next verse. Say what? The unicorn, not, not quite like this one. That's not really what we're seeing here. But he does say the unicorn. And as he speaks about the unicorn, verse 10, verse 9, excuse me, will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Now, we don't exactly know what this unicorn was, but we hear about it in various places in history. Aristotle spoke of the unicorn. Egyptian hieroglyphics had a unicorn. It looks kind of like a gazelle with one horn as best we can understand. Now, ancient mythology kind of has it like a horse with a, a, a horn coming out. It's possible it may have looked like that, but, but it wasn't mystical like we think of it today. It wasn't, it wasn't what people talk about today when they talk about unicorns, I can tell you that. It wasn't one of these things. But it probably looked more like this, but with one horn. This is an Arabian orange. Very strong animal. Kind of a mix between a bull and a gazelle. Strange markings. And this is kind of what the pictures that we see in Egyptian hieroglyphics look like. And Egyptians were always careful, by the way, to show when something had two horns. These hieroglyphics only show one horn. Most likely that was the unicorn. Aristotle, as I said, spoke of the unicorn. Now it seems as though these unicorns were very strong and majestic beasts. But they weren't tameable. I read to you verse 9. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band? And, or will he harrow the valley after thee? Apparently this animal was very untamable, because God had ordained certain animals to be domesticated and others are not. You can domesticate a horse Good luck domesticating a buffalo. You can domesticate a dog. Good luck domesticating various other animals on earth. Certain animals can be domesticated. Other ones cannot. Why? Because God made it this way. So he asked as his third question, can you? Can you guide these stars? Can you do these things? Job cannot. One final question before we apply this morning. Verses 13 through 30 of chapter 39. 
Did you give? Gave you? Verse 13, look at it with me. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, or wings and feathers unto the ostrich, which leaveth her eggs in the earth, and warmeth them in dust, and forgetteth that the foot may crush them, or that the wild beast may break them? She is hardened against her young ones, as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear, because God hath deprived her of wisdom. Neither hath he imparted to her understanding. He says, did you give the peacock those beautiful wings, Job? Did you paint those wings? Did you one day look at a peacock and say, you know, those are pretty boring wings. I'm just going to paint every peacock on earth to make them beautiful. You didn't do that, Job. I did. He asks Job, did you give feathers to the ostrich? You know, an ostrich can't fly. It can't. It has wings. It has feathers. But an ostrich cannot fly. God says, Job, did you do something like that? Did you give a bird feathers and wings but not allow it to fly? Would any man have done that? The very limits of our creative ability, would we have done that if a man was making the ostrich? Well, no. God says, I did that. I made the ostrich that way. You know, he said, I made the ostrich very different in a lot of ways. The Arabs describe the ostrich in this way. They say it is composed of the nature of a bird and a camel. Not a very flattering description for the ostrich. But you know, ostriches are pretty strange. She doesn't sit on her eggs. The mother ostrich does not. She allows the sun to warm them by day and sometimes the males will sit on them at night. God has built into the ostrich a disregard for her children. She's not interested in sitting on those eggs. She, she doesn't care if something comes and steps on those eggs and they break. She forgets about her young ones. It says in verse 16, she's hardened against her young ones. Her labor is in vain without fear. She doesn't care if she's laying eggs all day and they're just breaking in pieces because she's not guarding them. For whatever reason, God has not given her enough wisdom to care. God says, I did that. Maybe God has... Oh, we know God has a sense of humor. The way he made a lot of these animals. Verse 18, What time she lifted herself on high, she scorneth the horse and his rider. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? He begins to describe the horse here. A horse is an animal of intrinsic superiority to other animals. It is majestic. It's strong. It's capable. It's smart. Horses are amazing animals. They're warriors. They can be taught not to shy away from battle. Spears, swords, shields, arrows, they don't bother war horses. War horses don't just carry men into battle. They fight the battle. They stomp with their hooves. They bite. They kick. They're vicious in battle. A cavalry unit or as you look farther back, the horse units of various armies were terrifying units to go against for foot soldiers because those horses were ridiculously vicious. And they'll fight to the end, and they'll fight hard, and they'll fight loyally, and they'll look for battle. If they hear a battle in the distance, a war horse will seek it out. It is ready to fight. God says, did you do that to it? Does it take years and years and years of training to bring a horse to that point? No, it doesn't. God says, I made that. He asks in verse 26, Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Does the hawk fly because you, you tell it to fly? Do birds fly south at your command? Explain to me. Can any scientists explain to anyone how it is birds know to fly south for the winter? How it is they know where to go? How it is they know how to get to the exact same spot every year? They don't have a compass. They don't bring up their, their leg and they've got a little GPS unit on their leg. Oh, we're, we're three degrees off. Veer a little bit here. They don't do that. They know. They know. How do they know? God told them. He asked about the eagles. Do the eagles mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? Who taught the eagles to nest in those cliffs? Was it you? It wasn't. It was God. He says, 
in regard to the hawks and the eagles, from thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off. Eagles and hawks have about ten times the visual acuity of a human. Their eyes also pick up colors with greater clarity, allowing them to distinguish field mice when they're flying in the air. God asks Job, when you see a hawk circling above you, and they're able to see this tiny little mouse from way up there, pinpoint it, dive and grab that thing with its talons. Did you teach it how to do that? God says you didn't. Now we spent a great deal of time this morning asking the same questions God is asking Job. Perhaps my attempts through PowerPoint, my attempts through explanation at impressing upon you the glory of God was not as successful as when God appeared in the whirlwind to Job and impressed upon Job his glory. But even your pastor's feeble attempt should be sufficient for you to bear the same response to God that Job bore in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 40. Let's look at them together. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Or he that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job has asked God for answers and now God has come to Job. But not with the answers that Job has asked, rather with a rebuke to Job. And this is the rebuke. How dare Job feel as though his innocence entitles him to demand answers from God? How dare any man think that God owes him anything for any reason at any time? See, Job's answer then reveals his heart, reveals that he gets it, reveals that as he looks at the wonders of God's creation, as he looks at the incredible instincts that God has given to animals, as he looks at the stars and how they're formed and how they're arranged, as he thinks about all of the wonders and the mysteries of the earth, as he considers the world as it is and as it stands and all that we know and all that we know we don't know. He recognizes that God, God's wisdom, God's might, God's understanding and God's purposes are a lot bigger than he understands. And look folks, if we can't even understand the things that we see around us, how can we understand what God is doing? How, how, how should we think that God must answer to us for what he's doing in our lives? How should we demand understanding of everything that happens on a day-to-day basis? So Job says two things. He says first in verse 4, I am vile. We talked this morning about our righteousness. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are all as an unclean thing. Job remembers now. Oh yeah, I'm not quite as good as I thought I was. I'm not quite as innocent as I thought I was. I'm not quite as guiltless as I tried to make myself out to be. And then he says, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I'm just going to shut my mouth right now. I'm not going to say another word. I have nothing that I can say that can justify my actions. You know, this will not be the last time such a thing happens in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, any man, when confronted with a righteous God, when confronted with the truth of God's Word, will always leave recognizing his own inadequacy, his own wickedness, and his own weakness. I trust today, as you have been confronted with who God is, that you recognize some things about yourself, that you begin to recognize exactly how inadequate you are, how weak you are, exactly how wicked we are when compared to Almighty God. When we see God for who He is, we see ourselves for who we are, and we recognize just how unclean we all are, just how weak and frail and temporary we all are. Now, about a thousand years after Job writes here, we'll see this happen again when the prophet Isaiah records his vision. And in Isaiah 6, 
he sees a vision of the Almighty God and he responds this way in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Just like Job, when confronted with the person of God, Isaiah saw himself as vile. He says, woe is me, I am undone. He saw himself as a man of unclean lips and that he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. He says, I'm just going to shut my mouth because there's nothing coming out of this mouth that is of any use to God. Job's final statement was this in verse 5. I will proceed no further. Job realized he had well exceeded his right and it answers from God. Job realized that regardless of whatever amount of innocence he had according to the moral expectations of man, every man falls grossly short of God's righteousness. Isaiah would say it this way in the next verse of Isaiah, or excuse me, in Isaiah 64:6. But we are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now it's time for us to consider this morning the implications of what we have read in the Word of God. Now we can relate well to what we have read because all of these things about creation and animals and such still apply today. The weather, the animals, the stars, they're still in existence and they're still by and large a mystery to us. We can recognize well that there is still so much about how the created order works that we cannot understand, that we do not fathom, and we know by faith that it is because God has ordained it to be so. Now, we this morning do not have God speaking to us audibly. We have not physically come face to face with the glory of God in a whirlwind. Rather, it is our responsibility to respond in faith to the Word of God, to that which Job saw by sight, but we see by faith. It's our responsibility to see God for who He is, to see ourselves for who we are in the light of who God is, and to humble ourselves in the exact same way that Job humbled himself here in Job 40. We must allow God's creation to testify of His majesty, of His care, of His wisdom, of His sovereignty, of His preeminence. We must allow Scripture to reveal in you God's greatness and your uncleanness and to respond to Him in turn. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you have never responded to God's greatness and your unrighteousness. You have never come to the place where you have recognized that you are indeed a sinner. You are indeed unrighteous before God. But as you look at the text this morning, how can you but recognize God's greatness and your frailty. See, the Bible tells us, as we've read this morning in Isaiah 64, that we are all as an unclean thing, that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, that we are all sinners. And thank God He didn't just leave it that way. See, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, that because we are sinners, we are separated from God, that that separation from God is an eternal separation, that we as sinners are condemned to an eternity in hell for our sin, but that God has made a way. See, we're all sinners. Sin has sent us to hell. Sin has condemned us to hell. Heaven, the Scriptures tell us, is a perfect place. Heaven is a place where no sin is admissible. Heaven is a place where no sin is allowed. If you have ever once sinned before God, sin being anything we say, do, or think that offends the character, the nature, or the will of God, if we have ever done anything that offends God, if we've ever once lied, if we've ever once cheated, if we've ever once stolen anything, if we've ever once lusted in our hearts, if we've ever once hated somebody, if we've ever once harbored bitterness, then we've sinned. We've offended God's perfect standard. And the wages of sin is death. Separation from God. Not just physically, but spiritually for eternity. But you know, the Bible tells us in Romans that God commendeth His love toward us. God has loved us so much in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I told you in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the verse doesn't end there. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And so John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Scriptures tell us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, you cannot get yourself to heaven because you've done wrong. You are a sinner. It's not about you doing enough good things to outweigh your bad. It's not about you going to church enough or you giving enough to the church or you doing anything. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. See, if you can work your way to heaven, then when you get to heaven, you're going to be able to hold up that trophy and say, look what I did. I had an old magnet that my mom had on the fridge for my homework that said, look what Jamin did. And I'd come home with my homework and she'd slap that magnet on it and put it on the fridge or a coloring page or whatever it was. Look what Jamin did. No one's going to have a look what I did magnet in heaven. It's not going to be a one. The only magnets around are going to say, look what God did. And people are going to look at me and they're going to say, look what God did. See, because by grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. Gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. No man will boast in heaven in anything but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone. So the question is, have you ever accepted that gift of salvation? The Scriptures tell us, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, of course I believe. I believe that Jesus existed. That's not what the Bible says. Belief is not simply believing that God exists or that Jesus exists or that Jesus was a man or even that Jesus was God. Belief is personally accepting for yourself the person, the work, and the character of God. The Bible uses the word repentance to speak of a change of mind changing our minds about who God is and about what He has done, understanding who God is, understanding what He has done, and then humbling ourselves before Him and recognizing His authority over us. That is what it means to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, to place our faith in Him, to say, God, I am a sinner. I know that I cannot get myself to heaven. I know that there's no works I can do to get myself there, but you, God, can. Because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. I believe that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. And I accept His gift. The Bible says when we accept the gift, God judicially declares us righteous. It doesn't mean that we've never sinned. It means that when God sees us, He sees Christ in our place. That Christ's payment has been applied to our lives. That's the Gospel. That is the response that we ought to have when we recognize who we are in light of Almighty God, Holy God. But you know, perhaps you're here today and you are a believer. You have accepted Christ's righteousness on your behalf. By the way, if you have never made that decision to accept Christ as your Savior, would you stay for just a few minutes after the service? Talk to me. Get that taken care of today, right now. We're not guaranteed another minute. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day. But if you are a believer with, with us this morning, perhaps you've questioned the goodness of God in your life. Perhaps you've questioned why He made you the way He made you. Why did He give me this face? Why aren't I taller? Why aren't I more beautiful? Why aren't I more athletic? Why aren't I more capable? Why don't I have better this? Why aren't I this? Perhaps you've questioned your health. Why do I need these glasses? Why, do my, why is, is this hurting? Why is, this, why is my health so bad? Why did he give me this disease? Perhaps you question this. Why do I look around me and it seems like all those dishonest people are the rich ones? Why are all the people that do nothing but seek their own gain, why are they the ones that seem so happy, that seem so content with all the money? Perhaps you question your intelligence. Why can't I know what they know? Why can't I just be smarter? Why can't I just be better? Why can't I get grades like they get? Why can't I get the promotions that they get? 
Perhaps you question your capability. Perhaps you question what God has done in your life, the circumstances you're in. God, what did I do to deserve? How could you allow this to happen to me? We've all done these things. And if that's you in this room today, let's allow the lesson that God is teaching Job to teach you as well. See, God is in control. God is higher than we are. God makes no mistakes. And regardless of what God has done in our lives, many of those things, of course, being the consequences of our own actions, right? Yeah? But regardless, and most importantly, God does not answer to you. And God owes you nothing. You owe God everything. God owes you nothing. He created you. He sustains you. You rebelled against Him. He loved you. He sent His only begotten Son to die a sinner's death for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, to shed His blood for you, to bear the cross for you, to bear the pain for you, to bear the shame for you, to bear the separation from God for you, to drink that cup of God's wrath for you. How dare you accuse Him? Question Him. Charge Him as being unfair for all He's done for you. Rather wondering about the bad, perhaps consider the good that you have received at the hand of God. Consider your eyesight. Consider your breathing. Consider that your heart beats. Consider that you hear me this morning. Consider that you can speak, that you can write, that you can run, that you can jump, some of you. Consider what God has given you. And rather than attributing the bad to the vindictive and uncaring hand of God, perhaps wonder about how such an unrighteous creature as yourself could find so much good at the hand of God. Let us apply our hearts unto wisdom this morning. And let us see in light of who God is.